Good evening, and thank you, Brian, for just, again, just leading us so effectively and helpfully through the service so far. There's been so much in it. It's been great. Let me ask you a question. Uh, have you ever been really close to doing something really stupid? Okay. Only to kind of pull back, or rather to be pulled back from the brink in the nick of time. Where a friend or, or a partner or maybe even a stranger has kind of stepped in and saved you from making a major mistake. I don't know, can anybody relate to that? A few people are smiling and nodding. Well, in the next installment of, of David's story, this, this is exactly what happens. Last week, if you were here, David was the one restraining others from making a grave error. As Saul relieved himself in the cave, David's men wanted David to kill Saul. But David calmly and coolly chose not to murder him, but simply cut a chunk out of his robe. Now, I realize that that in itself was probably pretty symbolic, but nevertheless, it was a restrained course of action. In fact, you could say that, that in that moment, David was a model of self-restraint in a rather intense situation. Well, in tonight's episode of Walking the Walk, based on 1 Samuel 25, David becomes the one who's having to be restrained. He has to be restrained from actually taking someone's life. And so he shifts from the restrainer to the restrained. David almost seems in 1 Samuel 25, impestious and trigger happy. And if it hadn't have been for two people, actually, one of them unnamed, the other one identified as Abigail, if it hadn't have been for them, David might have lost the plot and lost dear knows what else into the bargain. And I, as I was kind of thinking about this and preparing for this, I reckon that some of us can identify with this part in the story. We're in, we're in certain situations and at certain moments, we, we actually do the right thing. Whereas at other times and in different circumstances, we come so close to doing something really stupid and really life-changing. And if I say, as I say, if it hadn't have been for someone else, who knows where, where some of us might be tonight? Who knows? If you do have a Bible, you want to turn to 1 Samuel 25. It's page 297 in, in the Red Pew Bibles. And we're going to just do what we've been doing with this series, and that is just working our way through the biblical narrative and trying to see what lessons we can learn. This chapter, as you'll, if you just glance at the first verse, it kind of starts on a rather solemn note with the report of Samuel's death. And in a sense, it, it kind of comes from left field because there's no warning. There's no elaboration. There's not even any explanation of how he died. And, and all we're actually told is that all Israel assembled and mourned his passing. And so a key character in David's story has now left the stage. But very quickly, a brand new one appears. 
But how we're introduced to this new character is striking, or at least it's striking in biblical terms. Look at verse 2. Now, in some translations, it kind of starts with, there was a man, or there was a certain man. And that's, that's pretty normal. But then usually what follows is his name. There was a man called, but not this time. And in fact, this is the only time, apart from one other, and there's a specific reason for that one other, but this is the only time in Scripture where we read, there was a man, and it's not followed immediately by his name. So how is he introduced? Well, in the rest of verse 2, he is defined by, not his name, but his wealth. Only after we discover what he has do we discover who he is. And one Old Testament scholar and commentator has put it like this. This way of introducing Nabal is precisely on target because Nabal's possessions precede his own person. His life is determined by his property. Nabal lives to defend his property and he dies in an orgy enjoying his property. Only after being told of his riches are we told his name. And as I've said, from a biblical perspective, that detail is highly significant. We all know how important names were and are in the Bible. And, and therefore, for anyone to be introduced and defined not by their name, but by something else, communicates an awful lot about them. It actually tells us what makes them tick. What are their priorities? What really matters to them? And I don't want to make too much of this, but in our context, there is at least an interesting question to consider and ask. What defines you? How do people introduce you? How do you introduce yourself? I've no doubt that our name features, but what else do we say about us by way of introduction? And what does it disclose about who we are and what's important to us? Just a thought. In terms of his actual name, those of you who've got one of these kind of reference Bibles uh, will know that Nabal means fool. And then if you look at the end of verse 3, you'll also discover that he's described as a surly and mean man. He's hard and nasty. And so right from the word go, name means fool. He's hard and nasty. You kind of realize, well, listen, his input into David's story is going to be at least interesting, isn't it? We also quickly discover that he's married. We'll get her name straight away, but she's Abigail. In terms of how she's described, there's a distinctive contrast. Look at it. We're immediately told she's clever and beautiful. She's attractive and intelligent. And as we're about to discover, she uses both to great effect. Back to the story. David, if you just scan through this with me, David sends 10 men to visit the fool, Nabal, during sheep shearing season. And those 10 men come with really positive and friendly words. Here's what they say. Peace and prosperity to you, Nabal. Peace to your family. And peace on everything you own. It almost seems, uh, it also seems, sorry, and we'll learn this a little later on, that, that David's men have been kind to Nabal's men. 
They've even helped to protect their sheep. Take a quick glance down at verse 16 where it says this. In fact, day and night, they, that's David's men, were like a wall of protection to us, that's Nabal's men, and to our sheep. And so David probably sent these men to Nabal with some kind of expectation that he would have shared a little of his possessions. After all, he's really rich. I'm coming in peace. My men have been good to your men. They have helped you to protect your sheep. You're wealthy, so why not share some of your possessions, some of your abundance with me? That's certainly what verses 8 and 9 imply, if you look at it. David had that expectation. Nabal's response is anything but kind or friendly or generous. He doesn't just refuse David's request. He actually goes on the offensive. He questions David's identity. Who who is this son of Jesse? And he calls him a runaway slave. So so word has got through to Nabal about David's past. And so he, he targets that. He also brands David's men a bunch of nobodies, outlaws, who've come from who knows where. David's men are kind of shocked by this. It's not the reaction they were expecting. And so they go back to David and tell him how Nabal reacted. And as you can imagine, David's not impressed. And what we discover here is he instructs Those who have been journeying with us will know David's got 600 men now. David instructs every one of them to strap a sword to their side. Because it means one thing. Nabal, you're in for it. And so David takes two-thirds of his men to go and take Nabal out. And he leaves 200 back at base. Nabal's days are now numbered. David is on the war path. He's raging. Now back at Nabal's camp, verse 16, one of Nabal's servants needs to talk. You see, he can't believe how his master reacted to David's men. He's shocked by it. He's appalled by it. And so he finds Abigail and he tells her, please, can I tell you what Nabal has just done? And whenever Abigail hears it, She's smart. And she wastes no time. And she sets out to intercept David. It says she arms herself with gifts. She doesn't tell her husband what she's doing. She doesn't tell her husband where she's going. Verse 20. We read that Abigail sees David and his 400 men coming. But then the scene kind of cuts back to David for a comment. Verse 21. Here we we realize just how angry David is. Because he says to his men, as they're on this warpath, he says to them, by this time tomorrow morning, not one of Nabal's household will still be alive. And if they are still alive, well, may God strike me and my enemies. David's language here is actually pretty choice. I don't know how many of you use the authorized of the King James Version. And I'm not saying this to be offensive. I'm just reading scripture. 
But the authorised version captures David's rage far better. Here's how that verse reads in its quaint language. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. It's a shocking thing to say. David is so angry. Abigail reaches David. I want you to try to picture this. She reaches David and has 400 men, sword strapped to their side. And she bows before him in humility. And amazingly, she accepts the blame. And she launches into a speech, an incredible speech. Now, the thing is, if if, if Nabal knew nothing about David, remember, Nabal has said, who is this son of Jesse? So so Nabal lets on, he knows nothing about him. Turns out Abigail knows lots. She knows the place that David has in God's purposes, as we discover. She refers to the Lord seven times in this speech. Let me read from verses 28. Please follow this with me. Verses 28 through to 31. Here's what she says. Please forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. That's David. Because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him as leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when my Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. You see, what you've got here is Abigail actually reminding David of his high calling. Something Jonathan did last week. Just reminding David of the promises of God in his life. And she suggests, listen, David, to to spill or to shed blood here would be unworthy of your calling. She actually refers to the fact, if you look up in verse 26, that the Lord has restrained David from blood guilt thus far, which is clearly a reference back to what happened in the cave. And so she pleads with David, David, don't blemish your record. Leave vengeance with God, which is something last week David actually said in his speech to Saul, vengeance is God's, not mine. And so Abigail here says, listen, David, leave vengeance to God. Because remember, David's on the warpath. He's he's out to take people out. And when Abigail finishes speaking, David reacts. He reacts. But he reacts well. He praises God for sending Abigail. And he realizes that if it hadn't been for her good sense, look at this. Thank God for your good sense, Abigail. And for God's leading David would have made a grave mistake. And so what does he do? He accepts her advice. He takes her gifts. 
And he sends her back home in peace, promising not to kill her husband. It's a incredible story. Nabal has been saved for now. But far more importantly, and this is the point, David has been saved. God has stepped in and intercepted him on a road to ruin. Who knows what would have happened if David's saviour in a skirt hadn't shown up? Who knows? Last week, God sent saviours into David's life in the form of Philistines, the most unlikely of people, do you remember? Who stopped the chase, the pursuit that Saul was on against David. Philistines had attacked Saul's homeland and they became David's out, his saviour. This week, God sends a different kind of saviour into David's life, Abigail. Last week in chapter 24, David refused to harm the king when he had the chance. In that situation, in that cave, David made a good choice. Even though the peer pressure was intense, all his men were hiding behind at the back of the cave saying, David, take him out. Take him out. You've got a chance. He's on his own. He's in a vulnerable position. Kill him. But David clearly saw what he must do, or rather what he must not do. This time round, he's blinded. He's heading for disaster. He needs someone else to intervene to help him to see sense, to pull him back from the brink. And when it happens, David recognizes God's hand in it and he directs his praise heavenward. As Dale Ralph Davis says, what loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness. And as I said at the start, I'll guarantee there's some here tonight who can identify with this. Where sometimes, despite the pressures from others to do the wrong thing, you actually choose to do the right thing you can you can relate to those moments in your life when people around you have said listen do it go this way take this course of action and you've said no not and then there are other occasions and maybe there's not a great time lag between the two as seems to be the case here whenever the mist descends And we find ourselves kind of hell-bent on taking matters into our own hands where we decide, I'm going to do things my way. And if somebody doesn't intervene, we're going to end up doing something really stupid that's going to change our lives forever. And there's going to be potentially far-reaching consequences. That is David's story. If it hadn't been for Abigail, if it hadn't been for her, what would have happened? And that's the amazing way that God works. The amazing way, if you like, God's providence works. And by providence, I simply mean that frequent, mysterious, always interesting way in which God provides for his servants in their various needs. God often uses other people to keep us on the straight and narrow. He does. Or to put it slightly differently, God frequently orders his providential care through human instruments. And although Abigail is the primary person, the primary human instrument in David's life, she's not the only one in this this story. There's another person that God used to save David. And that is that unnamed servant in verses 14 to 17. If it hadn't been for him, 
You could actually say in retrospect that everything depended on him having spoken to Abigail. I mean, he's a minor character. Don't even know his name. Yet his role is significant. I wonder, did David ever know of that servant's role in looking after his destiny? Did he? He knew about Abigail, obviously, but I wonder, did he ever know of that servant who actually went to Abigail and said, listen, you need to to do something here. And again, I I think it's, it's important for us to acknowledge that there are times whenever God uses people as links in the chain to influence our lives and we may never be aware of it. May never even know their name. And there are quite a few examples in scripture of kind of unsung heroes, unnamed people who God used to profoundly impact the lives of others. The little girl in in 2 Kings 5 who was so instrumental in the healing of Naaman. No idea of her name. Or what about Paul's unnamed nephew in Acts 16 who saved him from 40 men who were lying in wait to ambush him. No idea of his name. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is that there may be people, unsung heroes in your life, who've been used by God to keep you on the straight and narrow. And we should thank God for them. I also say it to remind you that you may be that person in someone else's life and, and they may never know it. They may never know it. But Abigail was different. She was the one who did speak directly into David's life and stopped him. And I suppose the the key question I want to ask us tonight is this. Are we willing to take the risk and speak into someone else's life in order to stop them from heading down a particular path? Are we? Are we willing to take... If we look around and we see one of our friends, one of our loved ones, heading in a particular direction... And we know they're about to make a major mistake. They're making crazy choices. Do we have the courage to go and speak into their lives? I mean, for Abigail, it was a huge risk to ride out on a donkey to meet 400 men, swords strapped to their side, on their way to kill. She took a risk. And then the other question is, if someone comes to us and we're, we're doing something really silly and we're about to make a major mistake and someone comes to us and speaks into our life, are we, like David, willing to listen and accept their wisdom and their warning and their advice? And if you kind of zoom out even further, and I realize this, this might be pushing it too far, But if we think about how God sent someone to save David from potential future disaster, is that not what this is all about? How God sent Jesus at just the right time to stop many of us careering down a path that would lead to ultimate destruction. But back to the story. Abigail goes home. And she goes home to find Nabal legless, completely drunk out of his mind, full by name, full by nature. 
And so she decides, you know something, there's no point talking to him tonight. And so she chooses to wait until the next morning, until he's sobered up, to tell him what's just happened. And whether it's the shock of the whole story, or what might have been, or whether it's the fact that his wife went behind his back, whatever reason, it says here that Nabal suffers some kind of heart attack whenever he hears the story. And 10 days later, he dies. And although we might lament Nabal's misfortune and and wonder, well, hang on a wee minute, how come nobody spoke into his life? It's all very well that, that somebody went and spoke into David's life and saved him. But how come nobody went and spoke into Nabal's life? Well, look at verse 17, because here's what the servant of Nabal said. No one can even talk to him. No one can even talk to him. Do you know there are some people just like that? I hope and pray none of us are those kind of people who, who just will not listen to reason, who will not listen to the voice of others. Nabal dies, a rich man. In material terms. But spiritually he dies totally bankrupt. And according to David in verse 39. This is maybe a bit harsh. He received the punishment for his sin. You see the consequences of unconfessed sin. Are extreme. And then in the story we discover. David woos Abigail. She becomes his wife. And the chapter ends with with a kind of note of David's other wives. One of whom, this this is here, one of whom has been given away by Saul to someone else. If if you've been on this journey in this series, do you remember Michael? M-I-C-H-A-L or however exactly you pronounce her name. She was Saul's daughter who Saul gave to David to be his wife. And she was the one who actually helped David escape out the window whenever Saul had sent the assassination squad to his bedroom. Well, it seems that Saul, as a, as a form of punishment, gives her away to someone else to be their wife. Which just goes to show, here's an interesting thought, just goes to show that even when we do the right thing, and intervene in someone's life for good and for God, there's no guarantee that there won't be a negative kickback. You see, doing the right thing is always the right thing to do, but it doesn't naturally flow that everything will then automatically go well for us as a result. She did the right thing at the right time and ended up being given away to someone else. And then the chapter ends... And we'll pick up the story on the 12th of January, I think it is again. But all I want to say as we close is this. If you are here tonight and you're in danger of doing something really silly, then I hope and pray there will be those in your life used by God who will pull you back from the brink just in the nick of time. Or if you're here tonight And you know there are people in your life who need you to draw alongside them and say, stop. Stop going there. 
Stop doing that. Pull back. God's got greater purposes for your life than this. Then I pray that you will have the courage to take the risk and to speak into their life. Let's pray. Father, again, we do just thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories that we read there. And for just how your plans work out. And how you use people to accomplish your purposes in people's lives. And I thank you for how you used Abigail in David's life. I thank you for how you used that unnamed servant in David's life. And I thank you that he was saved from doing something that could have changed things forever. And so I pray for each one of us, if there has been a lesson to take away from tonight, that you will impress that upon our hearts and minds as we continue to reflect on your life-changing, life-transforming word. And in Jesus' name we pray.